So uh, if, you're, if you're new here with us, we, for the most part, just teach through books of the Bible. You know the best thing about that? It keeps me on track. Do you know that? Otherwise, you'd be like, he said that sermon like eight weeks in a row. So if I'm making them up, I'd be like, we're tired. But if I preach the Bible, then it keeps me moving and forces me to teach other things. So, all right, plus it's God's word, not mine. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. How many of you like being told what to do? How many like that? How many kids like being told what to do by their parents? How many adults like being told what to do by their kids? How about that? Someone says it's the, it's the powdered bottom syndrome. If someone's powdered your bottom, they don't get to tell you what to do. So, uh, or we don't like it from teachers, or we don't like it from coworkers, or we don't like it from pastors. Who gets, to, who gets to tell you what to do? Who gets to do that? What's your reaction? I got some here. Uh, you don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do, right? That's some of your reaction. Or, don't tell me what to do. Have you seen that face? It's bedtime. Or this one. No, don't tell me what to do, right? Who tells a cat what to do? Do they do it? They do not, right? They do not. Like, I'm not a dog. So, what, may, you know, what happens when someone tells you what to do? Unsolicited advice. This is what you need to do. You need to eat less, drink less, spend less. Like, hey, why we don't like that? But what makes you willing to listen? What makes you willing to take instruction from a person, to listen to advice? What would make you willing to listen to a coworker, a friend, a parent, what would make you willing to listen to the Bible? Listen to God. What, what makes you do it from, you're not going to tell me what to do, to, I should really think about that. I think there's a few elements that will really make you listen. Um, and it usually revolves around, you really trust the person telling you. Right? You trust the person telling you. You know that the, they're telling you because they love you. Right? They're not selling you something. They love you. You would listen to them. You know that if um, they're doing it themselves, if they're living with integrity and they tell you, then you might listen. If they're like, you know what, I have this money plan for you, and they're completing bankruptcy, you're like, I, I don't think your advice is very helpful for me right now, right? You're like, well, you know, if they're, you know... Anyways, right? They got to be doing it, right? You're like, well, I'm not going to listen to you. You don't do it, right? You say slow down on the freeway and they're going 90. You're like, well, what are you talking about, right? I don't listen to you unless you're doing it, unless you're doing it. So you got to know that the person cares about you. They love you. They have your best interests in mind. They live it out themselves. They have integrity. And then you might be willing to listen to somebody if they tell you no. All right? If they tell you, stop. If they tell you, that's bad for you. We still have probably an initial reaction of like, well, nobody tells me. You kind of bow up. But then you might go back and think about it. You might go back. I remember that years ago with a student, and 
And uh, she was dating somebody, and we all saw, like, this person's not good for you. This person's not going anywhere. This person's struggling in the Lord. And so I remember Heather met with her and talked to her about it. And there was an initial, like, you can't, you can't tell me. And offense, you know, offense to this person. And then later they came back and said, you were right. And I thought about it. And, I, and, and because she knew that we loved her and we didn't have any secret motive or agenda. And so she was willing to listen to even something as hard as you should stop dating this person because there was love and trust and integrity, right? So that's what we're going to get at today because God's going to tell us some things and uh, he's going to tell us some important things about uh, our actions. He's going to tell us no. He's going to tell us these things are harmful for you. And why should we listen? Why should we listen to what God tells us? So here's our point today. We want to trust and honor, which we're going to see is really a short listen, obey. We want to trust and honor the God who's all in for you, who really does have your best interests at heart, who really does want good things for you. He's not telling you no to steal joy and to make life miserable and to assert his authority and to stomp around, because that doesn't usually work for us. Uh, he's gonna sh- we're going to see today how much God loves us, how much he cares about us, which is going to give us an ability to trust him and to be willing to listen to him and obey him even in hard ways. So that's where we're going today. What I want to do first is read the passage we're going to look at, and then we'll come back and, and, uh, and look at the different pieces. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm in 1 Peter. That's not going to work. It's good, but it's not tied up with the slides. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So where we're going to start is verse 9. And last week I ended in verses 9 through 11. And so they kind of hinge. They hinge us from the first half of the chapter. 9 through 11 is a hinge that kind of goes both directions. So we ended with it. We'll start with it and go to the end of the chapter. So 1 Corinthians Verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. 
but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay, you're already going, I see where this is going. Okay, so this is why we got to trust and honor God who's all in for you, who loves you, who deeply cares for you, because he's going to give us some really clear instruction about our activity, especially in the realm of sexuality. So we started, like I said, verses 9 through 11 are a hinge. And this is such a beautiful thing. And I, I, I don't want us to get hung up on the, the list of bad stuff. I want to see what happens. Because it's, it's so, it covers us all, right? He's saying, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? Nobody just walks in as is. Nobody comes before God and says, I'm here now. Let me in. I'm good to go. I'm a good person. No, because we're all unrighteous. So we don't inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes through the list. And it, this list checks a lot of boxes for all of us, right? Some one, two, some of you are like, <laughs> checked all those boxes at one time, right? But he's going to go through a tough list. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. Then it switch thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. That's a, that's, that checks boxes for all of us. We all have a way where we have lived in opposition to God's righteousness. But verse 11 is the beautiful part. And such were some of you. This is the great hope of the gospel. It doesn't matter what you've come from, where your background is, what kind of sinful life we've lived. When you come to Jesus, that becomes a past story, not a current. That's what you were. But it says, then it says you were washed. To be washed clean before God... So when you come to Christ, every sin we've committed is washed away. Every kind of lifestyle is washed away. We're not stuck in that forever. Then it says you were sanctified, which is you were made to be holy. When you come to Jesus, he makes you holy. That's what sanctified means. And then it says, and you were justified, which is like a legal. You've been declared righteous and just before God. That's the great hope that we all have. Whatever our past Whatever sin we're in doesn't define you forever. When you come to Jesus, all that is forgiven. You are changed. You're washed clean. You're made holy. You're declared righteous because of faith in Jesus, not any works that you do. Amen, sir. Anybody happy with that? Anybody like, that's the goodness of God. And so that's where I want us to think. We can be completely cleansed. Some of you are like, that's a good sermon. Let's go. That would be too, but we got more. We got more. But that's where this thing kind of hinged from last week into this week. This middle part of the passage just describes no matter where we've been, what we've done, what the rebellion looks like, it's not the forever definition. When you come to Jesus, he changes you, and he makes you new, holy, justified. That's the hope we have. So what happens next in this passage is that there's some sayings that are brought up. And so you have to remember, Paul here, he spent 18 months in this town of Corinth planting this church. So he knows these people. He's also been traveling through the the Roman Empire, the Greek culture. He knows the culture. So whether these sayings were actually said to him 
or he's just supplying them because he knows them really well. That's what he's doing because it reads kind of funny. So some like my Bible actually put quotes around him. But he's going to give a common saying or belief and he's going to dispute it. Common saying or belief. He's almost anticipating the rebuttal or the excuses the people would have or the cultural beliefs they had. So he's they come kind of fast. But that's what's happening here. So either they actually said them to him or he just really knows what it's like. Just like if you've lived here, you're like, yeah, I know kind of what it's like to live here. Paul's going to say them. So he's just, he's just described this beautiful picture that when you come to Jesus, all of our sins are washed and cleansed. And then, okay, now what do we do? And so he's going to give these phrases. So I put them in a different color so you'd see it. Right? He's saying it for them. Well, all things are lawful. I'm totally free. I'm forgiven in Christ. I'm not under the law anymore. Right? So that's, that's what he's, he's, he's supplying something they might say. All things are lawful. I'm good to go. And he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. He gives it again. I will not be dominated by anything. So you kind of, they, one of their sayings was, hey, it's all, we're, we're in the clear now. We're free. We're not under the law. We don't have to sacrifice animals. We don't have to, we're free in Christ. You just read it, right? You're, you're washed, you're cleansed, we're good to go. And then this other one, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food. And you're like, yes, this is elementary biology, but no, it's a saying, it's getting at the idea that this is that appetites and urges are what it's for. Food is meant for you to eat. If you're craving something, you eat it. The stomach is meant for food. That's what you put in there. So it's this way of saying a saying that that's what the body wants. You need to give it. You need to feed that craving, right? That's, that's the idea. And what they're getting at in, in a, a Greek culture you know, what, what this is really getting at, it's not about food, right? Because the next half of that verse tells us the body is not meant for sexual immorality. So basically, they had a phrase that meant if your body has the urge, you just, you just fill it because that's what the body's for. Whether it's a food urge or a drink urge or a sexual urge, it's a body thing. You just let your body do it. And in the Greek culture, they had this kind of separatist view that your body and your spirit were separate. And so since I'm free in Christ spiritually, it doesn't really matter what happens to my body. Here's a saying that came from Plato. Indulge the senses now because they won't go with you. Right? You have this time on earth where you can have physical pleasures. When you die, that part's over. This is a Greek view now. So go for it now. Let your body Foods for the, that's what it's for, right? That's what it's for. So if you want to have one pound of brisket or 10 pounds of brisket, right? But this really isn't talking about food. This is, he's, he's getting at sexual things, right? That's not what it's for. What are ours? What are, I got a couple here. YOLO, you only live once. Get it done now. You guys heard of this? Yeah. Sounds more lame when an old guy like me says it, I'm aware. But anyways, YOLO, you only live once. FOMO, fear of missing out. I don't know, I, I got to get in there. All my friends are over there. They're saying, I, gotta, I don't want to miss out. So we got FOMO, we got YOLO, right? We, we got to live now. It's the same things they're saying, right? Well, the food's for the stomach, stomach's for food. I don't want to miss out. I only live once. Never know if I'm going to get another chance. All my friends are doing it. I don't want to miss this opportunity. They're saying it's good. It's the same cultural pressures, okay? That's what he's getting at. He's just described this beautiful cleansing life in Christ, and he immediately goes to their reactions 
whether they were actual reactions or he just knows their cultural reactions, right? So let's look at these, right? They see, you know, all things are lawful. I'm free, but not all things are helpful or profitable. There's very few instances. There's only a couple in the Bible where your sin immediately killed you. We got the Ananias and Sapphira action, right? That was, that was one. But for the most part, you can do all kinds of things and lightning bolts don't come down and take you out. And you just keep going, right? So I can do it. I'm free in Christ. Past sins and future sins. He's like, okay, you can technically say that. But is it going to be good for you? Is it going to help you in your life? Is, is, is viewing pornography going to work out? Probably not, right? It's not going to be good. A lightning bolt might not come down. God might not melt your hard drive that next moment. But it's not going to help you in your life. And he does it again. All things are lawful. I can do it. He says, but I won't be dominated. I won't be ruled by anything. And here's what happens in life. What starts as a choice and a decision and a craving moves to, we use the word addiction in our culture, right? An addiction is defined where you do it despite the negative consequences. You know it's bad, but you can't stop. Right? We, have, we have them everywhere. So he's saying, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, you can go there. But you're going to move from a choice to something owning you. You're going to move from freedom back to slavery. And he's saying, so I don't want that. So this is him answering these. And so he said, I'm, we're not going there. And this idea, and what, what we're getting at, I should have said that earlier, when he says you're not made for sexual immorality, it's the word or pornea, where we get our word pornography. It's kind of a catch-all word. It's kind of a catch-all word for any kind of sexual activity outside of the narrow view of Scripture, which is one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage. So when he says pornea, it's like everything else, right? Pornography, adultery, what, any kind of sexual activity that's not a one man, one woman marriage. That's what he's getting at. So he's saying, you can go do all these other things. In this culture, maybe their equivalent of pornography would be the Greek temples. Because many of the Greek temples, the worship included, there would be prostitutes there, men and women. And so to go worship that God involved visiting a prostitute. So that's what it's getting at. That's what was their culture. They didn't have smartphones and all the things that takes us down. But that's what he's getting at. He's like, yeah, okay, you can go there. You can go to that Greek temple. You can go to that website. You can hook up with that person. But what's going to happen? It starts free, and you're going to be enslaved. And it's going to start making a mess. Okay, then verse 13, this one, it's just an urge, right? In their view, the body was something to be fed, an appetite to be filled. Food's for the stomach, the stomach's for the food. If you want it, eat it, right? McDonald's is all over this, your way right away. Usually their way means I have a stomachache right away, but that's another conversation. Um, Food, but he's saying, but God will destroy both one and another. Now this one, you're going to wait time out. God's getting rid of the stomach? I thought we were going to eat in heaven. What's this? We're not... He's not saying God will destroy stomachs. He's saying it's really the, the craving. The, there is feasting in heaven. Now you can read in Revelation. There's feasting. There's the, the marriage supper of the lamb. There's eating. There's fruits. There's fish in the sea the, in the river flowing out of the throne. Though they don't describe catching and eating the fish. So there's a little gray area there for me. But, uh, but at least there's fruits and vegetables. I'll give you that much. 
But the point, you're going, wait, what is this God's going to destroy the stomach? What he's going to destroy is the longing and the craving and the starving and the needing, right? That's what's going to be destroyed. It's not that we'll walk around with a big hole in absence here. He's going to destroy the stomach. He's going to destroy the craving, the needing of it, because we'll be complete, we'll be complete, Right? He says, well, every, he's making everything new. There's no more sorrow or mourning or crying or pain or death. There's no more craving. There's no more people who can't get enough food. There's no more people who can't satisfy that. Or there's no more, I need it and I can't be filled without it. All that is going to be done. So he's not saying we don't have food. He's saying you don't have a longing that's driving at you and pulling on you and dominating your mind and owning you. That's done with. That's done. So this idea of, well, it's just what the body's for. He's like, no, because it's not going to be eternally that way. It's not what it's for. It's not what it's for, right? He's going to say the body is not meant for it. It's meant for the Lord. So we get the picture here. You're not meant for sexual immorality. He's, he's, he's a, he says, you've been freed. You've been cleansed. You've been made new. So you don't want to say, woohoo, you know, I slipped the chain. I'm running down the street. no. He's saying it doesn't mean live however you want. Your body isn't just for craving. Keep this pure, sexual, controlled life. So here we're back to that. Well, how come you get to tell me that? Because he's basically saying a big fat no. No, right? And who likes no? How come we would listen to God? Why would we accept the Bible's very, very, very narrow, limited view of this? Why would we listen? Why would, is it just because God's up there stomping his foot? I said so. How many of you like it when your parents say that? Usually what happens is you kind of set your jaw and you say, okay, I'll do it. But inside you're rebelling all the way and you rebel all the way, right? You externally comply with, oh, I didn't really listen. So God certainly can do that. But in this passage, there's seven reasons he gives you to listen. There's seven reasons in here. Why he's all in for you. Why when he says no and draws a very tight, small circle around sex and sexuality, we would say, I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to listen to his no. I'm not going to listen to the culture. I'm not going to YOLO and FOMO. I'm going to listen. Okay? So there's seven reasons. It's not just him saying, no, I'm God. I said so. So I want us to see these reasons. Why we would trust him, why we wouldn't follow the cultural values, why we wouldn't throw these sayings out like, well, I'm free now and this is what the body's for. So let's look at them. I got them here for you. Why? Reason number one, you were actually made for God. You were made for God. We want to tr- trust and honor the God who's all in for you. You were made for him. You see that in verse 15. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach's for food. God will destroy one and the other. And then the second half, the body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You weren't created as a being to satisfy sexual urges. That wasn't why you were made. You were made for God. That's your primary reason to exist, not to fill urges, not to eat a bunch of stuff and conquer a bunch. Of, no, you were meant for God. If you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, we see God's intention in Genesis chapter 1, why he made you, what you're supposed to do. It's not this empty shell that just fills a, a, a vacuum. Look in Genesis 1, uh, verse 26 and 7. Genesis 1, 26 and 7. It's right at the beginning, first page in your Bible. 
It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You were made for God. You were made to image him. It's almost more like a verb than a noun. He, God, reigns over the heavens and the earth, and God completely reigns over heaven and describes everything that goes there. And he said, I'm going to make man to image me and do the same thing on the earth, right? He's going to have dominion over, you know, first one's nice, fish of the sea. I like that. The Lord answered my prayers, and a commercial fisherman moved in next door. Can you believe that? He came out. He said, do you like fish? Uh Uh-huh. So... It's beautiful. It's in the Bible. So, uh, but the idea isn't dominate, destroy, cru- the way that God reigns in heaven and directs all that goes there. He says, I want a human family to reflect, to image me, to reign over this beautiful creation I've just made, to steward it, to cultivate it, to multiply in it. Like, this is pre-sin. There's no sin here. This is something you were made to reflect the reign and rule of God on earth. And in this paradise he put us in, and, he, and you, you reflect God in doing that. When you, you are most fulfilled and you're functioning according to your purposes, when you're imaging God, you're stewarding what he's put in front of you. You're managing it in a profitable way. You're caring for it in a healthy way. You're multiplying, and it doesn't necessarily have to be biological children. Because when Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he said, go make more disciples. So you image God when you multiply disciples on the earth. You image God when you care for things. You image God when you grow gardens, right? You image God when you take and, and improve a, a piece of property, let's say. You, those are things of God. See, that's actually what you were meant for. You weren't meant to be a ravenous, craving, body-seeking satisfaction. That wasn't your design. So when he says, I made you... And I'm telling you, no, it's because I actually know how you work best. And that's not it. That's not it. So that's the first reason we should trust him when he says a big fat no. Because he actually made you. And he designed you to create, to steward, to dominion, to harness, to work in this earth, to work and reflect him on earth. You weren't made just to fill a giant hole. Okay, that's the first one. Second reason we'd listen to him, we'd trust him is that our bodies will be raised. This is going in direct conflict to the Greek view, right? The Greek view is the physical body's done, it's the spirit that counts. The Christian view, the biblical view is, no, no, body is raised. We're not separate. Let's look at that back in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. It says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Right? There is no separation. There is no, the spirit is good and holy. This is where later in New Testament times, a teaching comes in called Gnosticism, that the spirit is good. The spirit is what counts. Your body's just a vessel, so who cares what happens to it? That's a Greek view. It's not a biblical view. It's an idea that you're trying to escape the body. Now, as mine breaks more and works, I'm like, yeah, it would be nice to have a different one, one of these Olympic bodies, but that's not the point either. 
We're not trying to escape this body. We're not trying to say the body's bad because God's going to raise it. And the New Testament makes a big deal about Jesus coming in the flesh. You can read that in 1 John. That's one of the tests for heresy. That's one of the tests for unclean spirits. If they're suggesting that Jesus was only a spirit, that's an unclean spirit. That's a heresy. Right? It's very important that Jesus came in the flesh. The eternal Son of God took flesh upon him. He was killed in the flesh. He was buried in the flesh. And he raised in the flesh. He was risen in the flesh. In Luke, when he goes into the room and the disciples are in there, they're freaked out. Like, oh, no, it's a ghost. He's like, I'm not a ghost. Come here and touch me. Give me some food. And they give him some fish. So, right? He eats. He's like, I'm not a ghost. He has that body forever. He's raised in the body, right? He didn't go back to being a spirit. He has a resurrected body. God raised the Lord. He will raise you. It is not a Christian view to think the goal is to escape this body. That's not a Christian view. That's a, that's a Greek view. So look in the, if you flip over to Philippians chapter 3, we see the same language. Paul's writing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. We're going to see the same language around the same topics. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Let me get a drink here. His brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. You hear that same kind of language, right? We're just living for urges. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, right? They only live once. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the key part, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The Christian vision is a resurrected, glorified body. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 like in two years, we'll get there. We'll talk. We're like, what does that mean? And how does that? We'll get there. But just know for now, it's a raised body. The Christian hope is not to escape this body. The Christian hope is that it will be raised. It will be transformed. It will be glorified. You know, it will be healed. I'm imagining a glorified ACL coming right back into this knee. Like, yes, it works again. That's the Christian vision. So you die. You're in there and your spirit goes to be with the Lord, but there is a day of resurrection when the dead are raised. We're not trying to escape the body. This body goes on forever. So the idea that this thing's only going to be around a few years, let's trash it, let's mistreat it, who cares what happens? No. God died in a body to save you because your body's going with you. It'll be changed, it'll be glorified, it'll be fixed, but it's still you. So this idea of it doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It's intensely matter. So that's the second reason. Your body goes on forever. And he's going to raise it forever. All right, third reason we listen. Not only is your body gone forever, it says you are part of Christ's body. You're part of him. You're part of him. You see that here in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
So it has this image. It's not just that it's your body, but you become part of his body. A lot of language, we'll see this, gets us in chapter 12 of this letter, that Christ is the head and we are all the parts of his body. You're actually part of him. You're part of him. It's not just an external thing. It's not just a religious thing. It's not just a new set of ideas you have. When you come to Christ, he says, I'm actually joining you to myself. You're one of me. And a lot of times I think when we're seeking connection and love and we're seeking it in ways that involve sexuality, we're seeking that. Like, I so want to be known. I want to be a part of something. I want to be accepted fully. And unless it's in the narrow view of God has, it actually doesn't get you there. So the very thing we're seeking ends up failing. And the very thing that would satisfy you is Christ and being part of him. He's saying, I actually feel that. You become part of me. I join you to myself. And you're also called the, the bride of Christ. We're one with him. So that's, that's the, uh, the fourth reason. No, that's the third reason. You're actually part of him forever. He's nourishing you, caring for you. You're connected to him. So he's saying, listen to me. Fourth reason, we are one spirit with the Lord. So not only a body, not only is your body raised, not only a part of his body, you're also connected in spirit to the Lord. You see this in 6 verse 17. 6 verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Not just physical, also spiritual. See that in, in John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He will be in you. So God is saying, I made you. I designed you to image me. I'm going to raise you forever. You're part of my body, and my spirit goes to be with you. We are one spirit. We are deeply connected to the Lord in his body and his spirit in us. There's nothing closer than you can get than his spirit in you. He wants to be with you. And so in Christ, that's what happens. So this isn't someone from way down the way shouting out instructions to you. This is someone who's deeply connected to you saying, I'm trying to direct you in a way that's healthy. The fifth one is that God is actually protecting us. He's protecting us. See that in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He's saying, I just don't want you to get hurt. Frisbee on the freeway is not a good place to play, right? You're going to get hit. So he, th- this is the thing from the beginning of time to today. God made a perfect environment. He put two people in it. He said, cultivate it, live, multiply. Don't eat the one tree. And the tempter comes up, the enemy comes up and says, did God really say that? Because he knows that if you eat it, you'll become like him. Basically, the whole lie of the enemy is God is holding out on you. God is keeping you from every good thing. You shouldn't trust him. You should do what you want to do. And here, like there, God's saying, I'm actually trying to keep you alive. I care about you eternally. I don't want you in the short years of this life to get hurt. 
I'm not a counselor, so I don't know this, but I bet if we interviewed and surveyed counselors and we asked them, what is the source of much pain in people who come into your office? What percentage of it would be linked to some kind of sexual sin? What would you guess that percentage would be? I think it would be pretty darn high. And some of it has nothing to do with you. Right? Some people face abuse, and it's horrid, and it's unfair, but it deeply harms that person, that child. And they can be recovered, and many of you have recovered from things like that, and God can do a healing work, but that kind of sin deeply harms. But if, you, if we were to all say, think of one or two things in your life that you, if you could go back, you would change. Think of the area that brings the most shame upon you that you would hate to tell. My guess would be that it would be in the area of some kind of sexual sin. Say, that brought the most pain. That brought the most hurt. I was seeking to have my heart filled. I got my heart broke. And God's saying, you could avoid all that. That could all pass you by if you listen to me. Now, the good news is there's never, you're done, you're out, you failed, right? Because what do we read in verses 11? You were cleansed. You're washed. You always can come to the Lord. You can always be made new. This isn't a, you blew it, it's over, your life stinks. But he's saying, I can save you a lot of pain. At any time in your life, when you choose to follow me in this, I'm trying to protect you because sexual sin hurts you in a deeper way. And he'll heal that. I have 100% hope that God heals the deepest, deepest wounds. But it takes time and it's work. But God is actually protecting you. He's not trying to steal good things from you. He's not lying to you. He's saying, this is going to hurt you. And it doesn't matter what your culture says and what everybody else says. He's saying, I've always been in it for you. Okay, number six. We can trust him and listen to him because we are a temple of God. That word doesn't mean a lot to us. It doesn't resonate in our culture. We don't, we don't really think in terms of temples. Some places around the world, you very much do. But a temple in its most simple understanding in any culture is a sacred space where humans can interact with the divine. The divine. It's sacred space. Okay, that's what they are. And usually there's some kind of sacred space where mediation happens. And this is in any culture, and any religious view. The idea is that the people want to connect to the deity and something happens in between, right? Some kind of cleansing, atoning thing has to happen. So when God comes and picks the people, Israel, and says, I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to have sacred space among you. He tells them to build a tent, and build a special room in the tent called the Holy of Holies. And my very glory and presence will dwell in the sacred space. And there's rituals and sacrifices to atone for you so that I could dwell there. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm actually, I'm the temple. He says that in John 2. And they freak out. But he becomes the sacred space. Jesus is the space and the atoning work. He's also the priest that atones for us. But the idea of a temple is sacred space. The space where the deity, where God dwells to be with you, to be present. So it goes from there's a tent, and then there's a temple that was built, and then it goes to Jesus saying, I'm the sacred space. And we see in Ephesians 2 that the whole church is sacred space, or we're, we're collectively a temple. But here we even see you individually are in Christ. You see that in verse 19? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are sacred space. That's a way different view from, ah, food for the stomach, ah, it's just a shell, just feel, no, no. The glorified, the eternal God wants to dwell right there. 
One of the worst moments in the Bible is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees a vision of the temple in Jerusalem. And in the vision, he sees this glory, the glory of God, and he sees it leave the temple. He says, I'm out of here. You're rebellious and sinful, and the glory of God departs. It's, it's this horrible, sad moment, and then they're conquered by the enemies. And it's like, this is the worst of the worst. God actually left. God's glory left. He's no longer inhabiting the sacred space, and we can't. And then the whole thing gets torn down anyways. So here, it's a big deal. We don't always think in terms of temple, but God actually inhabits you. You are a sacred space. He dwells among you. His glory is there. Like, is, is there any, it's, the value is immense. And how, the only reason is his glory can dwell in you is that something happened to mediate, which was the work of Jesus Christ. So we are a temple. He's dwelling in you. It's not just a shell. It's not just urges. And then the seventh one, Jesus paid the highest price for you. What's all the talk right now out there in the market? Right? It's the housing market. It's on fire. Right? I could not afford to live in my house if I had to buy it all over again. What's going on? It's insane, right? It's crazy. What's that mean? Why, why did your house jump if you have a Why did it jump? Or you've seen it in rental prices, a couple hundred thousand and a lot. Why is that? Why is it jumping? Why, why is it going so high? Why are there bidding wars? I think almost all the purchases in Washington are as a result of bidding wars. Right? It's just, it's nuts. The prices are nuts and people are driving the price up crazy. Why? Well, somebody thought it was worth it. The price is dependent on what someone will pay. And in a few years, it all changes. Someone might pay less, but it's driven by the perceived value. I will pay this much for this house because it's worth it to me. And that's the same thing with the Lord Jesus. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. What price was he willing to pay for you? The death of the son. Right? The death of the son. He was willing to hang on a cross, be forsaken of the father, be cursed, be killed. He paid the highest price. Why? Like, why did he pay that high price? Because he thought you were worth it. He thought you were worth it. First Peter 1 Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. He didn't buy our way out of, of this, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He paid the ultimate price. He paid the highest price. He thought it was worth it. Some would look at you. I, he looked at me. I don't think you're worth it. He thought it was worth it. He thought it was worth it. So this is where it says we can trust and honor the God who's all in for you. He's not up there stamping his foot and puffing his chest out and saying, I'm going to make these people obey and show my power. He's saying, listen, <laughs> what more can I do? I made you. I'm going to raise you. So you're with me forever. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to make you part of my body, my spirit part of you. I'm going to habit you in sacred space. I'm protecting you from the deepest kind of harm. And I, and I paid the highest price for you. So I'm asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to consider that my, this very narrow view is actually the best thing for you. 
And he says, that's this honor. So glorify God. Honor him. Live for his glory above all else. That's what it gets to. Could you trust me? Would you trust me with your full body, with your full sexuality? Would you trust me because of all these reasons? All these reasons. And would you live for me? Would you glorify me? Would you trust me? It comes from a great sense of being, being thankful. I've encountered this with a few different neighbors over the years, but a couple of different people who've emigrated to this country from other countries. And one of them in particular, I think he told me he came here with like 10 bucks or 20 bucks. Came here, nothing. And he was living in New York and nothing. And he's worked and worked and owned several different businesses now and owns a couple different houses. And, but there's some kind of deep appreciation they have, <laughs> he has. He's like, I came to this country with nothing. I have all this opportunity. I've become very successful in this country. And so he would never want to like dishonor it. He, he was like, I, I would never want to hurt this country because if, if I stayed where I came from, I had no opportunity. I would be stuck in poverty. Things were a mess. We had this like super appreciation. Sometimes I think we forget that. If you talk to someone who's moved here from another place, like you, you don't know what it's like to have like curfews and gunfire or have poverty all over the place. You don't realize the opportunity. Sometimes we forget that when you just live here all the time. But I've encountered that with a few different people who've come from other countries and they're like, wow. This was the land of opportunity. This changed my whole, I, I would never have these opportunities. So they're grateful. Like, I've never want to dishonor this place. I'd always want to honor it. I think we need to think that from the Lord. He paid so much for me. He changed me and cleansed me, made me this whole new person. I'd, I want to live for him. I don't want to dishonor that. I, do you, maybe you remember, what was it like when you were in the first list? And you're addicted and ashamed and struggling. Like, I don't want to go back there. Because I've been cleaned and new, and I just want to live for him. If you mess up, I want to come back. There's no YOLO, you only live once in the Bible. There's you live forever with Christ. There's no FOMO, there's no missing out. When you're in the eternal kingdom of God, you're satisfied forever. There's no YOLO, there's no FOMO in Christ. You're with him forever grateful. So I just urge you to say, how can I honor you with everything I got? How can I trust you with every decision, especially in this area of sex and sexuality? Would I just honor you in the deepest way? So let me pray, and the worship team's going to come up, and we're going to share communion together. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much that you paid this price. Thank you for this overwhelming list of reasons to listen to you. Thank you that you want us forever. You inhabit us now. You're going to bring us to you forever. Thank you that you're looking out for us. Give us a humility to trust you, to listen to you, to tune out the lies of our culture. Especially our students, Lord, our young people as they're growing. And it's all around them. Would you give them a courage to live for you and just to be protected? I pray for anyone who have deep wounds in this area, that you would do a healing work. Don't let the lie of shame come in and throw it in their face. You cleanse all that. You took our shame. Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name. I'm hoping you grab one of these on the way in. They're communion cups. If not, the table's, I'm hoping, still out there. Pop up and grab a, a communion. But um, we just talked about that Jesus paid the ultimate price. So there's a bread and there's a cup. And we're going we're gonna to take this together today. So what I want to do, I want to give you a moment just to pray yourself. And just thank the Lord Jesus 
confess any sin. Maybe you've just been far from the Lord and you just need to come back. But just take a moment and pray. And then don't eat it. I want us to eat it together today. So just take a moment and pray yourself. Thank the Lord. Confess any sin. Ask for help. Anything you need to do to pray. And then I'll tell us we'll take it together in a moment. So let's just have a quiet moment now. Lord, we thank you for paying the ultimate price. Thank you that you cleanse us. Thank you that there's nothing we've done that turns us away. You're not repulsed. We're not beyond hope. You've paid the full price. We can all come in. Lord, heal us in the deep places. Direct us into futures that avoid hurt and pain. But most of all, we honor you. We're supposed to do this to remember you. You gave it all. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take this bread together. Remember the Lord.